0: Well this morning I'm really excited. We have a guest speaker. His name is Kevin Hegeman. Kevin is a friend of mine. Uh, We became friends while I was still doing youth ministry just down the road at Eagle Ridge Bible Fellowship and Kevin was doing youth ministry and worship ministry over at Hillside uh, which is just off of Austin Avenue there. Uh, Some of you know Hillside um, that Pastor Dave Barker who pastored here for a while before that he was over at Hillside with Derwin Gray and he Uh, was the first pastor there at Hillside, right Kevin? Yeah, so there's a big connection for us, but during uh, the time where Kevin and I were both youth pastoring and part of the same youth ministerial, I just grew in such great appreciation for Kevin, his thoughtfulness towards ministry and relationship with God, and just the way he expresses, um, yeah, just a love for people, and just his kindness is something that just drew me to him, and and just have appreciated him for years. I'm so grateful, Kevin, that you're here to share God's with us this morning. Why don't you come up and I'll pray for you. And um, yeah, would you just give Kevin a warm welcome to Calvary this morning? Some of our Some of our youth staff and students uh, for our youth ministry have gotten to know Kevin because over the last couple of years, uh, Hillside along with Blue Mountain and Calvary have done their spring retreats together. So I know my boys were really looking forward to Kevin being here this morning too. So God, thank you so much for my friend Kevin. Just thank you so much for his love for you and your word. Just pray that your spirit would speak through us, uh, through Kevin this morning to us and that you would give both him and us, great joy. And I just thank you that you are pleased with your servant and just, yeah, bless him, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: Well, thank you for having me this morning. Uh Dave says, it's been a real privilege to be able to work with um, uh, several of your pastors over the, the years. And I mean, the Bible talks about pastors being gifts to their church. And I think you know this already but it's worth repeating, Calvary, you are really blessed to have some, some excellent gifts in the pastors who care for you. Um, and I, I love being able to watch that from uh, working with them. Would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5? Genesis chapter 5. Um, sometimes life is really hard. Uh, I'm sure that some of you have had Uh, simply terrible weeks. Some of you have had weeks that aren't just marked by inconveniences, but marked by maybe deep loss or betrayal or hopelessness. I've had those weeks. Um, Sometimes it's felt like I've had those years. And for me, nothing is as crushing as the pain of a disappointed hope. Nothing feels as painful as when you have been so looking forward to something and that gets taken away from you. Uh, My grandfather, my opa, passed away this year pretty suddenly from a serious infection that he contracted. It was heartbreaking. And one of the most heartbreaking things was the calendar invitation on June 4th to his birthday party that he had invited us to because he was so excited to have us all together. I was excited to be there. In 2020, one of my best friends who lives in England uh, invited me to be one of the groomsmen, or usher, in his wedding. And it wasn't until all the flights were booked and our epic bachelor party in the Scottish Highlands were all planned that COVID hit, and I was no longer able to join them there. I was gutted, disappointed hope. And isn't this how we feel when we get this far into the book of Genesis? God has created a world with such hope, such promise for goodness. Be fruitful, multiply, care for the earth, be like me, God says, and make this place a paradise. And yet, the first humans decide to trust their own vision rather than trusting God's. Throw out all that opening poetry, as you've been walking through, you've seen how God is the one who sees, who understands what's good. And he tells humans, I know you. I've made you, I know what's good, will you trust me? And Adam and Eve decide that their eyes are actually pretty good. They're pretty good at deciding what's good and what's bad. And given the tree of independence or the tree of life, they choose independence and things begin to fall apart. Shame pervades. There's jealousy, there's blame shifting, Adam and Eve have two children, and one of them kills the other one. What a disappointment of hope. Chapter four closes with the birth of a new son, Seth. What does it mean? Is it good news? Or is this just adding more fuel to the fire? Is it even good to bring another child into the mess that's forming? Well, why don't we read what scripture has to say? Uh, we're in Genesis chapter five, and we're beginning at verse one. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years. And then, what does it say? He died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. After he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then when Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalala lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalala lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years, and then Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech lived 182 years, he had a son, and he named him Noah and said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem and Ham and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let me pray. Father, would you teach us what this means? Help us to see you, to be formed by you. Lord, help us to be transformed by the good news that you speak into a hopeless world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you uh, don't know me, so I want to make something clear. I am not some sort of extra holy person who naturally jumps to the genealogies in my Bible. <laughs> I'm preaching and it was felt almost a struggle to, you know, read through that whole thing. And some of you are like, the whole thing, Kevin? I don't have 1 Chronicles 1 tattooed on my back. Um, I don't have the table of nations as like a decorative vinyl on my living room wall. But I'm convinced that there's a good reason for this genealogy to be here. Um, scrolls aren't cheap, <laughs> writing was not common, and as I know you've already seen so far, Genesis is masterfully and artistically crafted. The Mona Lisa does not have careless brushstrokes in it, and neither does Genesis. And sometimes because we're, we're scared of a genealogy and it doesn't make sense to us, we can actually miss the forest for the trees, And and jump to, well, maybe there's a secret meeting in here, some codes that we need to find, and, and we might actually miss the beauty that this is actually God's word for us. It doesn't need to be unlocked. It's not primarily for us to age and date things, but to actually see good news from Jesus. So this morning, I'd like to show you how Genesis 5, a genealogy, answers the despair of what has just come before it in the fourth chapter. I think it shows us that in light of sin some things have changed. Some things have not changed. And some things are not what you'd expect them to be. So you got that some things have changed, some things have not changed, and some things are not what you'd expect. At 9:24 a.m. on September the 19th, the tenor bell at Westminster Abbey in London told. And then at 9.25 a.m. it rang again. And it continued to ring every minute until 11 a.m. when the late Queen Elizabeth's funeral service began. It rang 96 times every minute to mark her 96 years. On that Monday in central London, you could not go more than 59 seconds without being reminded that the Queen had died. That's what this chapter is like, right? Even though we've seen somebody murdered, this word die has not come up since it was just a potential consequence in the garden. Not since the snake said it won't happen. Not since God said it was the consequence of rejecting life. But here the hammer hits and we can't forget it. Death has not only arrived, but we set it out, right? It's the new normal. It it dings every minute. The fact that humans were deeply deceived becomes really apparent. Like maybe up to this point, they thought that maybe they could live independent of God. According to the serpent, you shall not surely die, but the bell tolls, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's easy to forget that this dying isn't so much the Lord just vindictively punishing people as it is the natural consequence of just living apart from the tree of life. <laughs> I once tried to drive my 96 Hyundai Sport Accent up a four by four only route in Chilliwack, and it died. <laughs> not because it was a bad car, not because Hyundai was punishing me, it died because it was off-road. <laughs> it wasn't being used to do what it was designed to do. And we were designed to be with God, with the tree of life, to trust God, to care for what he cares for. So as we've seen so far, the question of Genesis is, which tree do you want? To be with God? To be attached to the source of life? Or to be attached to your own way of doing things? To try and live without the source of life? And he died. And he died. And he died. This choice means something has changed. Sin has changed something. But some things haven't changed. One of the reasons that I'm convinced that the genealogies in Genesis really matter is because of how they're part of that artistry of Genesis. Um, The whole book of Genesis is actually divided into sections by this repeated phrase. In the NIV, um, it's translated helpfully as this is the account of. Another way of translating it is to say, these are the generations of. Um, Both of these kind of get at what Genesis is all about. It's the origin story, right? The heritage of our world, of you and I. It's about the generations of the world that we live in. So the whole book of Genesis is divided into sections. Each section describes the next generation story. Um, In chapter one, we have chapter one, which is kind of the prologue The opening poetry, if you've seen Star Wars, it's like the scrolling credits that give you the background to what has happened so far. And then like in Star Wars, the camera pans down to what's happening on the ground and it introduces chapter two with, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And it gives us the account of God creating, of God generating all that is, and the humans who he has made in his image. And that account, the generations of the heaven and earth is what, we've just, what you guys have just finished going through from chapters two to four. And chapter five starts the next section. These are the generations of the human, of Adam that God created. So what things haven't changed? Well, I'd say it's God's plan to bring about the generations of humanity. God's plan to form the earth and fill it. These are the generations of the earth. From the earth we have Adam and now we've got the generations of Adam. Um, For those of you for whom English is a second language, uh, you know that translation isn't always a simple business. And sometimes things just don't translate word for word, right, and normally we can see this when you look at a few different Bible translations and they all have different words. It's not normally because there's some big fight, it's just they're all trying to pick the best word that could work there. So um, in our English uh, Bibles that we have, this kind of got this word like begat, Adam begat. That's kind of the older version of some of your Bibles or he fathered or he became the father of. Well, in Hebrew, uh, the word is from the same root as all of these introduction sections, from the same root as like the generations. The best that I could think of and maybe you'll have some more creative ideas. <laughs> the best that I can think of that links that in English would be to say that like Adam generated a son <laughs> in the generations of the, of the days. Now, you can see why I'm not on the translating committee. <laughs> it's a weird way of saying that somebody had a kid. But it, it ties in this, the, the generations of humanity keep continuing. I think chapter five is showing us that God's plan hasn't changed. In chapter three, on the heels of human sin, it's the same thing that he says to Eve, right? though you will be in pain, you will bring forth children. And if you'll forgive me, you will generate children who will be then the generations. So these are the generations. Adam generated, Seth generated, and it goes on. So I hope you're starting to see how intentionally patterned this genealogy is. Um, We don't study genealogies as a genre very much, do we? Um, But if you map this out, You see, and maybe you notice this as we were reading it through, that every line uses the exact same words, the exact same grammar. And the only thing that changes are the ages and the names. Except for a couple of places. And you notice these as well, right? Where there's a dramatic shift. And the first time that actually happens is with the first person on the list, with Adam, the first human. And this points to something else that hasn't changed, I think is really important. We read that, just after we're reminded of how God created Adam in his own image, we see that Adam had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. In uh, Carmen Eim's brand new book, Being God's Image, she points to this verse as a profoundly important affirmation of what has not changed, and it's good news. God created in the beginning, male and female, as his image, in his likeness, and sin hasn't changed that. I think sometimes we speak of the fall as if we ruined our ability to be made in the image of God. And that's kind of what we'd expect to happen, right? (laughs) But God loves us. And here, as we recount the generations of humanity, we're reminded that God, in the beginning, created human as his image, in his likeness, and then after the fall, Adam fathers a child who is, in his, as his image, in his likeness, the exact same way it's put in Genesis 1 and 2. And really, if we think about it, that might not be too surprising. Because what is it that made us God's image? Was it us? I'll remind you where humans came from, right? The, the, the dust of the ground. The dust didn't do anything to become God's image. It, it can't, therefore, do anything to stop being God's image. We're dusty images, and that is the best news. I've learned from Carmen Imes that this has tremendous implications. It means that there's nothing that we can add or subtract from a human being that makes their life less valuable. Not intelligence or appearance, not age, not ability, not even morality, because there are no hierarchies of image-bearing. Human lives are of utmost value simply because we are God's image. The fact that this language is used to describe Adam's son also helps us better understand what it means to be God's image. It means that in some way, we are like genetic family with God. There's a kinship that we share with God that has some kind of parallel with a parent and their child. Now the question on all of your minds, on mine, is does this mean that we do a good job of being God's image bearers? (laughs) Not at all. Um, We've already spoken about this death that comes because we have not acted like we're designed to. And the rest of scripture speaks about what it looks like to carry his image well. And the fact that actually we can't lose God's image, that actually doesn't diminish how we think about sin, right? In fact, it might elevate it. It means that every time we sin, we're not just choosing our own way, we're misrepresenting the God whose kids we are. We're made to look like him to all of creation. (laughs) And when we look like him and don't act like him, we cause tremendous confusion. No wonder God takes sin so seriously. Genesis has kind of got these bookends, right? It begins with God bringing goodness from chaos, and it ends with the assessment of Joseph at the end, where he says, what you intended for evil, God has worked together for good. There's this theme of God bringing goodness out of what looks to be chaos. This morning, uh, some of you have seen and experienced the consequences of your own sin. And all you can imagine is that God's hopes for you were disappointed. So often, um, I have made decisions that I feel like have ruined what I was supposed to do, or what I was supposed to be. As if God was looking at my life and finally threw up his hands and said, Kevin, I can't believe it. You blew it. My plans are ruined. I guess I'll have to figure something else out. Brothers and sisters, the purposes for which God has ultimately created you are still God's purposes. We are dusty images. And the dust reminds us that it's not us who gives us the image. God has not given up because some things have not changed. <laughs> this is one of them. There are some things that are just simply not what we would expect. Some of you might remember something else that was repeated when the queen died. While the bells were tolling throughout the United Kingdom, there were announcements being made. I don't know if you, you paid attention to this, um, It was a real kind of throwback to ancient times where all these heralds brought out these old poofy shirts and poofy hats and the trumpets and actually went out with scrolls to make an announcement. And do you remember what the announcement was? It was, the the queen is dead, long live the king. 70 years earlier, it had been, the king is dead, long live the queen. Why would you do that? (laughs) Like, it feels pretty abrupt, like a pretty quick move on uh, from she's dead to... But there's another king. Um, And that's not simply uh, like a stiff English upper lip, I don't think. Um, Historically, this was to prevent fights about who deserved the throne. It was to assure the people that there was continuity in leadership. The monarch has died, but the crown continues. The institution stands. And if we didn't look too closely at this genealogy, because if we didn't value genealogies, we might miss that that's exactly what's going on here too. We have the repeated death toll, and he died, and he died, but following that phrase, every single time we read about another person living. Do you see it? And he died, and when so-and-so had lived, and it's been right there the whole time. (laughs) Um, this is the best that I think we can do in our English because of our grammar. We need like subjects before verbs and etc. Um, but in the original kind of reading, it, it kind of sounded like this. And he lived, Seth, 105 years. So it goes. And he died. And he lived. And he died. And he lived. Adam is dead. Long live Seth. Seth is dead. Long live Enosh. Enosh is dead. Long live Kenan. Every worldview has its origin story, Um, whether that worldview has a god, or many gods, or no gods. But I'll tell you what, whatever it is, it doesn't look like this one. This is tremendously unexpected. The the anti-died bit, that's kind of expected, right? Whether it's the weak being dominated by the strong, or the survival of the fittest, or society removing the nonconformers, or whether it's reincarnation, or karma, or the scale of deeds, or the good or bad vibes that you've manifested, we all expect that we get what we'll deserve. But that God would still keep bringing life, that even rejection of the most high God doesn't cause him to abandon his plans to bless them, this should knock our socks off. (laughs) Um, I think we're so used to hearing about God's goodness that we might not even realize how unexpected the and he lived part actually should be. Like pretend you don't know this story pretend you didn't see how long this book is. God says, eat this, and you'll die. And they eat it. And from everything we know about God so far, his words matter, and they accomplish what he says they will. And so we expect to read, and Adam lived all the days that he lived, and he died. Book closed, story over, humanity has failed. And yet... Though the image-bearer dies, the image of God still lives on. Seth lives. Enosh lives. The hope of life endures. After all, God said that one of these offspring of Eve will defeat the serpent. One of these offspring is supposed to crush his head. And every time the death toll rings, we might catch our breath. Enosh is dead. And then we hear, long live Kenan. What a sigh of relief. There is still hope. God is still for his people that have chosen death. The formula of this genealogy is broken two more times. As if God's continuing placing of the generations isn't enough to stir us. As if the living part is still not enough to stir us. we actually see another break. The last six individuals, um, sorry, verse 24 is where we are. And the last six individuals before verse 24, we have the exact same pattern, and we're expecting, and we were, and he died. That's the only phrase that could go here, but it's not, right? It's, what does it say? It's, he walked. He walked with God, and there was no Enoch, (laughs) because God took him. Um, Entire books, probably even libraries, have been written about what it is that this means, that God took Enoch. And I care about this text, and I care about you, and I care enough to not try and deal quickly (laughs) or uncarefully with everything that's going on here. Um, Like much of the early pages of Genesis, well, the techniques and the mechanics, the how of the text, I think that is really interesting. I'm quite interested in it. But the purpose of the text, I think, is not mysterious, it's clear. So, maybe skipping over all of what it might mean that God took Enoch, what we do know is that he did not die. The words, and he died, are missing from his account. And what it speaks to us about what it does mean to speak to us about is really beautiful. This simple line about Enoch reminds us that the tree of life still lives the decision to choose our independence instead of resting under the source of the tree of life, that that choice still exists. The ability to walk with God in the cool of the garden is not finished and over. The ringing of the death bell is interrupted. And while the resonance of that bell might have seemed overwhelming, there's still a whisper of hope. The rhythmic march of this passage is interrupted one more time by one other person who we are told also walked with God. In verse 28, we read of Lamech, um, and by the way, this is a much better Lamech than his cousin who's in the last chapter. (laughs) Um, And this Lamech fathered, begat, generated (laughs) a son, and he called him Noah, which means rest, and it sounds like comfort. And he said this one, This one, he will comfort us from our work and from the toil of our hands, from the dust which Yahweh cursed. Brothers and sisters, uh, even from the cursed dust of the ground, God still creates dusty images. His purpose is still to bless them and multiply them. The rest of scripture plays this out. Now, the story of Noah is for another Sunday. But it's important to note that this the second time we're interrupted here is another person who walks with God. And he's not the last. In chapter 17, Abraham is asked to participate in this continuing of the blessing of the generations. Walk with me, the Lord says. That's how you will do it. That's how you will participate with me. His righteousness, his blamelessness, his life-giving comfort stems from the fact that he is walking with God. In, uh, in The Lord of the Rings, in The Two Towers, the characters face what seemed to be like an insurmountable task. There's this evil ring that needs to be brought within inches of the very evil that wants to take it, right? And Gandalf, who is kind of a mentor in this series, if you don't know it, <laughs> in the movie dialogue, after looking at how evil and hopeless things seem to be, he turns to his friend and he says, but for all of their cunning, we have one advantage. The ring remains hidden and that we should seek to destroy it has not yet entered their darkest dreams. And so the weapon of the enemy is moving toward Mordor in the hands of a hobbit and each day brings it closer to the fires of Mount Doom. I can't help but think that this is a little derivative of the good news of our text this morning. You have, I'm sure, spent time in Genesis 3.15, and we've mentioned it already, of God's promise of the one who would come to crush the head of the snake, the enemy. And for all his cunning, we have one advantage. The generations of humans continue. And though they are the ones who cause death, that a human could one day destroy it has not yet entered their darkest dreams. And so death, the weapon of the enemy, is moving toward the generation of a savior in this lineage of his very people. The Lord God made a habit of walking with his people in the garden. He called his people to walk with him and before him. He set up a tabernacle among them to meet with them. And all throughout scripture, his repeated promises, I will walk among you. You will be my people. I will be your God. And so Jesus, the eternal word came and lived and dwelled among us to walk with us. God would not let, and he died, become the final death toll until it finally told with him. And he died and he lived. In Romans 6, we read that the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. So, friends, I, I don't know what the weather in your life is like today. Um, for some of you, things are feeling pretty sunny, <laughs> some of you are feeling kind of hopeless. For some of us, it might be the weight of our sin. Have I spoiled my imageness, my dignity, my worth? For some of us, it might be the circumstances of the world around you. Politics aren't going the way you'd hoped, or you're worried about the kind of world that you're raising your kids in. You're frustrated, maybe you're crushed by disease and death and loss. Did you ever think that a genealogy might give you hope? In the midst of hopelessness, I did not. And yet, the Lord who brought about the very breath that formed these words intended them for us this morning. People who had never seen death all of a sudden suddenly inundated with death, thinking how could there be any hope? And we see that there is. Um, In uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the girl Lucy finds herself on a ship full of people that she loves and they're trapped in this dark and mysterious void. Some of you know this story. And it's been ages in this darkness. And because there's magical stuff going on, it might be forever that they stay here. And when almost all hope seems lost, in the distance, she sees a bird coming toward her. As it gets closer, she's the only one who sees it. And she sees the large wings of what turns out to be an albatross and still no one sees it. And the bird doesn't shout. It does not speak loud enough for anyone else to really hear it. In fact, he just whispers tenderly to Lucy, courage, dear heart, courage. And that is all she needed. I want to invite the music team to come up as they're gonna lead us as we continue to respond. But sisters and brothers, Take courage. In the darkest of darks, in the midst of, and he died, and he died, and he died, there's a whisper. Help is on the way. He has not forgotten you. The very death that is most painful is the avenue he will use to bring life. So we can say that even when we walk through the darkest valley, we will fear no evil because he is with us. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you walk with us and invite us to thereby walk with you. Lord, thank you in the midst of what seems to be the most hopeless of times, the whisper of truth still pierces through that you have not abandoned your plan that you are coming for us. Lord, I pray that this would sink down and become the good news that it is in the very core of our being. And Lord, may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear those around us who need to be told courage, dear heart, (laughs) that we might encourage one another as we run this race, um, knowing that you are the one who will complete it. Lord, help us to see you. Help us to notice you with us. Pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.